Now, I was looking at how the passage talks about Jesus, and I thought about, have you ever seen a hero of a movie or the main character of a movie, on the one hand, be extremely humble, inviting, caring, and compassionate, uh, someone who's greater, who invites in the weaker, who comes alongside them and just wants to show them compassion, while at the same time, being the hero of the movie in this epic battle, this epic war in which they are this great warrior, in which uh, they defeat the bad guy and, and, and sort of just overcome wickedness, and they, they're strong and a champion. And then they spend the rest of their mo the movie, or the, sort of the ending of the movie, comforting those who they've rescued, where they've come alongside and really just cared for them, told them that they, they wanted to rescue them and save them caring for the ones that they fought for. Now, I, I couldn't think of anyone, a main character like that in any movie. Maybe you did, so if you do, please see me after the service. But I, I, I wanted to look and see what were the great movies that were, you know, presented with these main characters. And I looked up IMDb, and I looked up the top-ranking movies, and one of the top-ranking movies is The Dark Knight with Batman in it. And, and I, you know, I just, I see Batman as a, as a victor, as a champion, but I just don't see him handing someone a tissue and, and comforting them and holding them t close. I just don't see that happening. But that's the picture that we actually get to see of Christ this morning. Christ in this passage, and we're going to paint with broad brushstrokes this morning. We see this morning that Christ is our brother, Christ is our victor, and Christ is our high priest. So first, look back at the passage. Look at verse 11, because this we see that Christ is our brother. Verse 11, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Now, what do you think about calling Jesus a brother? That he calls all believers, women included, brothers. And if you want to make it easy, you can say we are the brothers and sisters of Christ. Now, what comes to mind, what do you feel when you hear that Jesus is our brother? Now, for some of us, we could be fine with that. We have that kind of relationship with Jesus where we've kind of grown up, where we've learned, hey, like, I'm as close to Jesus as a brother. He's, he's, he's my best friend. He's my pal. He's, he's a brother. He's, he's my brother. That's fine. Uh, for some of us, though, it might make us a little uncomfortable. We, maybe we've been raised in a tradition where we see Jesus as, and, and God as very much above us, where there's the glory of God and the authority of God, and, and there needs to be some distance between us where it makes us kind of squeamish of, I, I, don't, I don't feel that warm and fuzziness of God. But I think for all of us, we need to be like, uncomfortable a little bit with this because of what it's saying. It is saying that Jesus is identifying with fallen human beings. That, that Jesus is saying, I am going to be in the family with sinful, broken people. And, and just reverse, your, reverse the position for a second. How much do you enjoy identifying with sinful, broken people? I mean, just think about your workplace. I mean, where you work. Like, when someone says, oh, you're co-workers with this person, or you work in the same company, and you go, uh, we work in the same company, but I'm not like that coworker. I'm not like that one who, who messed up or, or is lazy. I, I don't want to be identified with them. Or think about when you're in the grocery store and the mother has the screaming child. You know, she, she will say, that's my, that's my son or daughter. But, but you can tell there's this distance. Like, I, 
I don't want to be identified with that screaming monster, you know? Um, and, then, and then there's just us in this room. It's, it's us as believers. Because we hear of other Christians in the world doing evil and wicked things, and we say, I don't want to be identified with that person. Or even take away the, the wickedness and just say, there's some things that other believers do that makes us uncomfortable. And what we say to people is, oh, I'm not like those Christians. Even there we want to create space. We don't want to be identified with them. But it's not just other people that Jesus is identifying with, which is the problem. It's that Jesus is identifying with us. You're the one that Jesus is identifying with. That Christ, as the perfect man, came down and lived the perfect life. And he cared for the poor and the downtrodden and the weak and the wounded. And he, he lived his entire life basically caring for people. And he knew scriptures and he knew God perfectly and he followed him every day of his life. And he didn't wound or hurt anyone, whether physically or with their words. And this is the one, this is the perfect man who is choosing to identify with you. And here's the thing, is that Christ experienced what we experienced. He lived the life that we are living, and yet he didn't mess up the way that we have. I mean, who here can say they have lived the perfect life? I know I haven't. I mean, who of us have come along the side, the poor and the broken and the wounded, in which we've given our time and our money and our very lives to the service of God day in and day out, who has never wounded another person? I mean, be honest with yourself. There's, there's a path in your life. There's a trail of people in your life. There's, a, there's messed up relationships. There's wrong words. There's wounds that you have inflicted. There's messed up families. There's failure of responsibilities and morals. And yet Christ wants to call us brothers and sisters to have a bond with sinful people. He is saying, you are in my family. And that I'm not ashamed by that. And what he's doing is he's inviting us in. He's saying, I want you to understand that you are being identified as part of my family. And so what takes place is Jesus is actually inviting us to have access and intimacy with the king. To be in his family and to be identified with him and him to identify with us. Now listen, none of us are going to be walking outside the palace of the castle of the king of England and even if we try to dress up really nice, even if we present our resume, we're not going to pretend like we're brothers and sisters with him. We're not going to walk up to the gates and go, oh, my brother's in there. Because no one's going to let you in. You don't believe it. They don't believe it. It's not going to happen. But let's say you were walking by one day, even if you just got done with yard work, and the gates open up, and the king comes out and says, that's my brother. That's my sister. And you go, Me? You don't hesitate. You run in. <laughs> you, you don't wait to make sure he changes. You, you just run for it. You go, wait a second, there is something taking place here. Even though I am not dressed for the occasion, even though I don't feel like I should identify with the king, the king is identifying with me, and I get to come and run into the palace and run in with him. And, and you get to recognize that what's taking place is the greater is identifying with the weaker and inviting them in. And this is us with Christ. Christ is the one who's giving us an identity of brothers and sisters of him. And what do we get is we get access and intimacy with the king. We get to be with Jesus as brothers and sisters. And this is what Christ is doing for us. And we need to recognize it. And we need to run to Christ saying, brother, 
and have that access and intimacy that he's inviting us into. Now, we need a Savior who will identify with us, but that can't be it. It can't be just Jesus putting his arm around us being like, we're brothers, and then me saying, my life's really hard. I, I feel sin's overtaking me, and he goes, well, good luck with that. <laughs> no, we need something more. We need a victor. We need a path. We need a, vi- a path towards victory, and Christ is the one who saves us, delivers us, and shows us that path of righteousness. And we see the victory in verses 14 and 15. Look back with me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. The main point that we see here is that Christ wins. And what's taking place is there's this cosmic war between God and Satan. Now we need to be really clear about this because it is not a war of equal powers. It is actually a war of God, who is way up here, and Satan way down here. And, and Satan's power is, is not absolute like God's. He is under the control of God, and God is ultimately the one who controls life and death. But Satan does have some power. Satan does have the ability to tempt us, to, to shame us. He, he is an accuser in God's courtroom demanding that hell and punishment fall upon us of saying, look, if these people are outside of God, outside of his righteousness, they deserve hell. They deserve punishment. He, is, he has the ability to shame and to tell us that we deserve hell and to tempt you and to say that you are no good. But what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us where we're at in the story? Is that we actually go back to the beginning. Because when the devil first seduced Adam and Eve and they rebelled against God, what fell upon them? It was the consequences of sin and death. And instead of them serving God, they instead became slaves to sin, slaves to death, slaves to the devil. And if we are outside of Christ, then that is true of us. If you don't know Christ, if you are not a brother of Christ, then you are a slave to sin. You are a slave to Satan. You are a slave to death. And so what do we need? What do we need to rescue us from that slavery? We need a victor. We need someone who will come and save us and free our chains of slavery that will free us and set us and let us go. And Jesus is the one who does that. Jesus is the one who fights the battle that we should have fought but would have lost. Instead, he goes as a victor to win the battle for us, to face death itself at the cost of his very own life. He tasted death on the cross so that we don't have to. And on the cross, he achieved victory. He freed us from sin. He freed us from Satan. He freed us from death. And we see that in in those three ways. First, we see that he is the victor over Satan. If Christ is in you, if, if you have Christ as a brother, then Satan can no longer accuse you. He may try. He will try to convince you that you still deserve hell. But in the cosmic courtroom, he has nothing to say because he'll say, that person deserves hell. And God will say, no. He has the righteousness of, God's, of Christ's blood on him. He is considered clean. He is considered righteousness. You have no hold over him. And second, he's the victor over sin. If you are in Christ, then you are no longer a slave to sin. Romans 6, 17 through 18 says this, But thanks be to God, though you used to be slaves to sin, 
you wholeheartedly obey the form of teaching in which you are entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I mean, do you realize that you have now the power to say no to sin? Outside of Christ, we are not able not to sin. Our entire lives are lived in a slavery to sin and to Satan. But Christ in his victory frees us from that slavery and teaches us to say no to unrighteousness and yes to righteousness. The victory won over sin, although Satan will continue to try to tempt you and say, oh, you can't win this battle. There will always be a thorn in your side. You will always say yes to sin. Trust me, don't try because you're not going to be able to achieve it. We get to say, that's not true. We actually get to walk in the experience of Jesus when he was in the desert and he was tempted three times by Satan. And every time he said no, with the victory of Christ on us, we get to say this exact same thing to Satan. Satan will try to tempt you. Satan will try to tell you that you have to sin. And we get to say, no, you have no hold over me. My victory is in Christ. And finally, we have victory over death. Because where do we see the ultimate victory? Now, if the power of Satan was victorious, I think he would point to the cross, but we know what comes after. It is the resurrection. It's, it's the death of death. As Philippians 1 says, to die is gain. Now, before Christ, you should fear death. If you don't know Christ, then either you think that this is the end of it, that if at the, at, at the end of your life, that's it, there's nothing afterwards, then yeah, you should be fearful. You should think, I gotta live life to the fullest, I gotta figure this out, I gotta do the right things. Because once I'm in the ground, I'm in the ground. Or you have a view that there is some sort of cosmic courtroom. You're not sure what it is, but maybe there's a scale, maybe there's a judgment. But something's coming to, to tell me whether I lived a good life or not. And that should produce fear of that, that I don't know if I'm living up to this standard. I don't even know what the standard is. But if Christ is our victor, then we know that death doesn't lead to those two things. Death in this life is not the end. And death isn't leading to judgment. It is leading to heaven. It is leading to glory. It is leading to a place where there's no sin, no death, no way the devil can tempt you, and you get to be with God in glory and in perfection. And so Christ, as our victor and brother, allows us to rejoice in Christ's love as sons and daughters, unafraid of the final judgment because the judgment has already been paid and we get to stand in righteousness. Now, what's better than a display of victory than a sports story? And it's the Super Bowl, so we got to talk about the Eagles. Now, John Darenbross played for the Philadelphia Eagles for 10 years before in 2017, at least at the beginning of that season, being traded to the New Orleans Saints. However, before you make a trade, you have to, you know, dot the I's and cross the T's. They had to go over contracts. They had to go over financing. And one of the things that they had to do was a thorough medical exam for John. Now, during that medical exam, John was diagnosed with an aortic aneurysm and required immediate emergency heart surgery. And as he was being wheeled into the emergency room, what took place on the back end? The Saints canceled the trade. They don't want a weak player. And the Eagles released him because they didn't need that player anymore either. And he was never to play football again. But what happened in that 2017 season that's going to happen in the 2022 season? 
the Eagles went on to win the Super Bowl. Now, John had no right to participate in the victory. He had nothing to do with any of the wins that season, and he definitely had no right to receive a Super Bowl ring. But the Eagles owner at the end of that season said, I'm going to choose John to be one of the few people who did not participate but receive a Super Bowl ring that season. And John has that Super Bowl ring. It's a ring of victory. Now, people might say he didn't earn it, which he didn't. He didn't do anything to help the team. People might try to convince him that he has no right to that ring. But the ring of victory was given to him, and it cannot be taken away. Satan will try to convince you that Christ's victory is not yours, that you didn't earn it, that you have no right to it. But the victory was given to us, and Satan cannot take that away. Christ's victory saves us from Satan and from sin and death and allows us to rejoice and to celebrate as if we won the Super Bowl, knowing Satan can no longer accuse us, sin can no longer enslave us, and death can no longer hold us. And look, I want to be clear, this entire time we've actually been working through this passage, we've actually been seeing the work of Christ as our priest, which is our final point. As brother, he has done the work of a priest by identifying and giving us access and bringing us in. As a victor, he does the work of a priest by giving us a path of righteousness. And in his final act as priest, we can see in verse 17, go there. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. What is the main role of the priest? It's to make atonement for the sins of the people. A atonement, it's, it's a satisfaction, if you will. It's a covering of sin. It's making man's relationship with God right again. And by becoming man, Christ becomes the representative high priest before God. But it's not that he's just a representative, a mediator between us and God. He actually takes us one step further and becomes the sacrifice for us to restore our relationship. On our behalf and in our place, he put his life so that we may have our relationship with God restored. And as we said, we are all slaves to sin and to death, but Christ showed us mercy. And he restored our relationship with God by meeting the demands of holiness that were placed upon us that we could not fulfill and became the reconciler between God and man by dying the death that we deserved. He reconciled us to himself so that we are no longer under the condemnation of sin, but instead covered by the blood of Christ and to be counted as righteous before God. Christ is our high priest and he is the one who reconciles us to God. And we print this every week in our bulletin. Look, it, you can turn to it in your bulletin, but I'm going to read it. it. It's every single week we print this. We say, Father, I've offended you by my words, actions, and thoughts. There is nothing I can do to reconcile myself to you. I believe the words of Jesus Christ that no one can come to you except through him. I now accept the crucified and risen Christ as the only acceptable payment that could ever be made for my sin, I desire to follow and obey him. Now, if you aren't sure about where you stand with God, if, if you want Christ as a brother, as a victor, as a priest, then I invite you to recognize these truths and pray this prayer. And if you pray this prayer, then, then come see me after the service, see one of the pastors, see one of the elders, because, because this is what we, what we want, is we want to be in right relationship with God. We want 
Christ be our priest who mediates between us and God, who represents us to our God in heaven. And so what is our response to the priestly work of Christ? Although Christ's work on the cross was a one-time act, we are not to turn to him just one time, (laughs) but we are actually to turn our entire lives over to him and continue to turn back to him even when we fail. Because as a priest, he is empathizing with us. He cares for our struggles. Look at verse 18. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Christ became man and dwelt among us, experiencing what we experience. And he was tempted in every way and yet did not fall. But he still, even though he did not fall, has solidarity with us and compassion with us, knowing that he felt what we feel. He he comes alongside us in our weakness because he experienced trials and sufferings as well. And so we are to call out to God in our confessions, in our needs, to continually turn back to him and say, Christ, I need more of your help. I need more of you to come alongside me and be my priest, be my high priest, knowing that his work as the high priest is still going on and he is still forgiving our sins. Now we are about to come to the Lord's table and and we get to come here because we are brothers and sisters of Christ, our brother. And even in our weakness and sin, we can confess knowing that God has secured our victory and says, you deserve a place at this table because you are now deemed righteous. And as a priest, we know that it's by his sacrifice that this table is made. This table was given to us by Christ. Now to finish this out, I, I, I want to share a story with you that I think captures the heart of this passage. And this story was of an old man who lived on the edge of a blue-collar town in a beat-up house, and he was bedridden. And he was very poor, and he was of weak health because earlier in his life, when he was a young man, he suffered a mining injury in that town. Now, he wasn't perfect, but people knew that he talked about the love of God, even though he was bedridden, even though he had no money. And, you know, some people thought that was strange. So there was this young man who was assigned a task in his school. And the task was to go and interview an older member of the town and figure out what it was like to live in that town when they were younger. And of course, the interview started where, you know, he talked about, the old man talked about growing up and what it was like to be a kid. But eventually it got to the mining injury. And the old man said, you know, God brought me through all of it. And the young man had to stop him and say, I'm sorry does God really love you the way that your life was ruined in that accident? And the old man thought about it for a minute. And he said this. There are times when I think about my friends with their fine homes and growing families, and Satan in those moments tells me, God doesn't love you like he loves those people. And there are times when I do cry and get angry and sin against God and blame God. And Satan tells me, God must hate you for how weak you are. And then there's times where I think about my accident, the one that changed the course of my life. And Satan asks, does God really love you? And it's in those moments where I take Satan to the cross, and there I point to the thorns on Jesus' head, the nails in his hands, and the nails in his feet, and I say to Satan, doesn't God 
really love me. God loves you. He is your brother. He is your victor. He is your high priest.